This is the Jocko Unraveling Podcast, Episode 5, with Daryl Cooper and me, Jocko Willink. Where'd we leave off, Daryl? You were going home, and Iraq was just starting to come apart at the seams. Um, You and your boys took down Sauter's lieutenant. The Shia rose up down in the south. Um, We had to redirect forces down there to get them under control, which was a problem because at the same exact time, we had problems with the Sunni population in the west out in Anbar. In Fallujah, four Blackwater contractors got lynched, mutilated, tortured, and hung up on display by a cheering crowd of, of people there. A few days after that, we sent uh, a guy named Mattis and his Marines into that city to retaliate. And um, if you tell the Marines that there's people in that city that killed a bunch of Americans and mutilated and tortured them and hung them up on display, go do something about it. You better provide very specific orders because uh, the Marines are going to tear somebody up. <laughs> and, um, and they went in hard and they went in fast. And the Arab language press just had a field day with that. Starts spreading out all over the Middle East, all over Iraq. The Americans are killing civilians. They're destroying indiscriminately. And this is going on right at the time that the Shia uprising is happening in the south. And so we are split up all over the country. Um, you seem to focus a lot on the Shia uprising on the south, which was definitely a, a, a real problem. But when you, if the first thing that pops into my mind when you talk about the Shia uprising is Baghdad, is Sadr City. That's the first thing I think about. Maybe that's because I was in Baghdad, but... But also, there was a. This is what I remember. I remember that Sadr City, like, was immediately there was a lot of heavy casualties in Sadr City, in and around Sadr City, to the uh, troops that were out there, like right after we went and got Yakubi. So, I, I, part of it's because it was more visible to me. Part of it's because this is another big thing that that is always was always evident was things that happened in Baghdad got a lot of press because it was Baghdad, the green zone. You know, you'd walk around the green zone, there was reporters and there was normal, you know, there was all kinds of press in the green zone. And that means they're, they're 10 yards from, from Baghdad, they're in Baghdad. And things that were going on in other parts of the country wouldn't receive as much press. And, you know, Fallujah had less press. Ramadi had even less press when we, when, by the time we get to Ramadi in 2006, there was very little press out in Ramadi, almost none. I didn't really start to get an idea of what was going on out in Ramadi while you were there until maybe 2009, 2010, before I started to read like some of the longer pieces that started to come out about what happened. Yeah. And I was following it pretty close. You know, I knew there was some fighting going on out there, the stuff that you would get in the New York Times or the you know, Wall Street Journal, but it took a while for people to really process what, what had happened out in Ambar. Yeah, and, and that's so, so Baghdad was, Baghdad went south real quick. Baghdad got bad real quick after, you know, that April. And again, that's about the time we're going home. Now, you know, we did we did some turnover ops with the guys that relieved us, and they were all pretty straightforward. You know, it wasn't, they weren't looking around going, hey, everything's gonna change for us. The IED threat had escalated, but it was still, it wasn't even close to what it turned into, you know. There is a reason that I, I tend to focus on the South a little bit. Um, and you can tell me if I'm a little off base here, but this, is, this was always my perception. 
this is right around the time. So let's see. Uh, back in August 2003, just before you first showed up, that was when al-Qaeda in Iraq hit the UN. They hit the Jordanian embassy. All the NGOs leave. The UN evacuates the country. And they're really working hard to do two things. One, not make this a coalition war, you know, where the UN is present and overseeing what's going on. This is the Americans in there against the Muslims, against the Iraqis, right? And so, and they accomplished that in 2003 in, in a lot of people's minds. And at the same time, they start hitting indiscriminately Shia holy sites, trying to foment a civil war. So now the Americans are just caught in this maelstrom, right? So that happens back in the fall before you get there. You're going around hitting targets, doing your thing, and we're trying to clean, clean this stuff up as it's starting to escalate. But we don't have a full grasp of what's going on yet. We think that it's um, remnants of the regime who are doing this kind of stuff. We don't have the idea yet, really, that there's an insurgency forming, an organized insurgency. We get up to March, March 2nd, 2004, uh, maybe March 11th. I'm sorry. I don't have it in front of me. And uh, the Spanish train, the Madrid train bombing happens. Hundreds of people are killed. 2,000 people are killed because al-Qaeda in Spain hits a train. This is a couple days, three days before the Spanish general elections, and it went from a candidate who was the front runner, who was supporting America, who was on board, uh, and it just swung immediately over to the anti-war candidate, and Spain was the hell out of there, right? You had had this movement, um, like you said, every war, every conflict, there is going to be a piece of the population that just says no, and there's going to be a piece within that group who doesn't just say no, who says, who has the idea that we are the bad guys here, right? And those, th those people are pretty tireless, and they're going to keep working. Um, as the war starts to go on and things start to happen and we start to lose control, those people start to make inroads into, you know, the rest of our own domestic population. Their side starts to grow. In Europe, it's already stronger than it is here in America. The Madrid train bombings happen. Uh, more Europeans start to say, eh, I don't know if we really want to be a piece of the, a part of this. And when the uh, when you guys took down Jacobi in Najaf, at the time, I mentioned this in the previous episode, uh, you know, we because it was a little bit more pacified down there with the Shia, uh, we had the uh, Bulgarians, the Poles, a bunch of our allies, coalition allies yep. down there, and they start getting hammered by Sadr's forces, and they're getting overrun. They're getting pushed back. And so that's more of our European allies who are like, ugh, this is getting a little bit uglier than we thought, and we're getting a little more isolated. And then we've got to redirect forces that maybe properly ought to be out in Anbar keeping, you know, this is, this is a time where al-Qaeda in Iraq is starting to consolidate their control over the rest of the Sunni insurgency, right? But we've got to redirect to go support our coalition allies in the south now. And it's funny because, you know, I just I look at maps of Iraq and stuff. I didn't realize that Najaf is a 5-hour drive down there. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's maybe 150 200 miles or something, but you know, we're not all driving on Interstate 5. Uh, yeah, you know. and and again, you're talking about driving in Humvees mm -hmm. and they're they're slower, you know, um they, you know, we're going usually 55 miles an hour. You know, that's like flat out. You know, maybe we get to 60, but pretty much you're going 55 60 miles an hour. Right. And also, there was, uh, you know, you'd have, you'd have to do some checkpoint stuff along the way. We'd, we'd go and check with the battle space. So, you know, you know, the 200 miles, you know, what, going 50 miles an hour, 
you know, that's a four hour drive. You make a stop for fuel. You make a, cause you know, we're not going to, we're not going to drive our vehicles until they're out of fuel or until we're low on fuel. So we'd stop some at some fob somewhere, get a refuel and, you know, check in with some battle space commander somewhere. So that, that brings it out. That stretches it out there. Next thing you know, you're looking at, yeah, you're looking at five hours. Okay. So we get to the point now where we've got our already, our, a force that our military brass already thinks is a little bit too low or really a lot too low to keep over, to provide overall security in the country. Now we're split up over here in Anbar, down to the south, in the Shia areas. <clears throat> our allies, because of Madrid, because of them getting hammered in the south right now, because of the marketing of the anti-war movement in the west, are already starting to lose faith in us. And then in, in April, as the country is starting to spiral, we know what's coming there. That's when Abu Ghraib happens. And, and that's kind of the frame that, that I put it in, is that we're, we're starting to lose control of the domestic conversation, um, not only in America, but within our European, you know, with the European allies as well and with the rest of the world. And to the extent that this becomes an American war, you know, an American crusade against the Muslims, and we lose the rest of the coalition, um, the, 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 the whole complex, the whole, the whole constellation of the war starts to change. And um, w- were you aware of any of that? Like, was was that in your head at all as you were starting to get ready to leave there in April? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a it's a good indicator, and I mentioned this on the last episode that when there's the CPA in Najaf is getting overrun. So, so think about what that means. The CPA is getting overrun. Well, let, let everybody know exactly. Well, that that means so the the coalition provisional authority. It's the it's the kind of makeshift government that's running Najaf. You know, there's different civilian authorities there, Iraqi and American, and they're trying to you know trying to rebuild some kind of a government. And this gets attacked and is about to be overrun, meaning that it's going to get taken over. And the the guys that were there it was a lot of actually it was a lot of contractors that were there. Um, they they were able to defend the situation Uh, but when that's happening (laughs) again and I said this on the last episode they called me and my guys in Baghdad so there is a multitude of these foreign uh, you know foreign military units down there on on that road there's like a road that goes from Baghdad to Najaf and along that way you know when I talk about stopping at checkpoints you know these were like different nationalities different countries you would have their little base we'd pull in there get fuel whatever and some of those people had armor. And instead of sending any of that, who are an hour away, 40 minutes away, two hours away, they take a group of guys that are in Baghdad with th- with thin-skinned Humvees to drive five hours to get who down had, there. Who had just returned <laughs> from driving five hours down there, yeah. executing an op, turning around, getting home, and now you're getting this yeah. And you're the best option. Yeah, and we're the best option. And, you know, it's, it's complimentary. Great, thank you. You know, I appreciate it. But from a tactical perspective, well, well, I mean, General Patton himself says a good plan executed now is better than a great plan executed in a week, right? Well, guess what? Even if I go right now, it's five hours. When a, when a, when a, when a um, building or a compound is under the threat of being overrun, you're not thinking that they're going to make it five hours. You said uh, yesterday, you used the term. Was this what they told you? So we need you to go down there as a QRF? Like you were the quick reaction? We were were the QRF, absolutely. you're five hours away. We're five hours away. (laughs) So, you know, that's an indicator. Okay, well, uh, and it was one of those things where, you you know, look, you're in the the military, right? 
and you you're thinking to yourself what are these what what is what is the chain of command thinking they don't get it they don't understand what's happening Wh- whatever we'll do our job maybe we're not seeing everything that they're seeing so but yeah as i as i mentioned on the last episode as i'm standing um, in a tower looking out at the highway and i see multiple burning vehicles i i, I hadn't we hadn't seen that we had not seen that type of thing at all. You'd see a vehicle somewhere. You wouldn't look out on the horizon and see five burning, you know, smoking vehicles that had just been hit with IEDs or RPGs and are now now under attack. So, yeah, I could tell it was getting bad. And, and, and again, as I said on the last episode, you, if you asked me March 1st if I would ever be coming back to Iraq as a, as a combat leader, I would have said probably not. This would be mopped up. If you asked me April 15th, I'd say, mm, we might be back here. When did you have a sense of, um, and I would understand if this wasn't the case, did you have a sense of uh, the public mood shifting, um, especially when Abu Ghraib happened? Like, did you have a moment when Abu Ghraib happened where, you know, were you just so in the military world at that point where you were just like, what are these guys doing? What are those, you know, MPs thinking? Or did you have a sense of like, oh, this is not good? Yeah, I I knew it was not good. Yeah, I knew it was not good. There had been some things that had taken place where where some things got caught up by the media, uh, got captured by the media, and it was bad. Um, I had a couple incidents that happened where we, you know, we didn't look good, and absolutely tiny in comparison, but enough that I said, okay, if this if this caused a caused this much backlash, then what's it, what just happened in Abu Ghraib is not going to be good. Were you? It sounded like when we talked about it yesterday, you had some experience. Like that, you must have been in country at the time because you talked about the mood of some of the Iraqis, like seeming to shift when that happened. Um, was that something you got when you returned in '06, or you're saying that the the it, mood had shifted with the uh, with some of the Iraqis you were interacting with? Yeah, you could you could feel it somewhat. It also was very regional dependent, right? Depending on where you were. Um, and it was that was like one of those just creepy things, you know. You'd go through a certain town, certain village, and I remember we went. We, we actually we were on our way. I think we were actually on our way to Najaf, and we went through a, a town. You got a map there of, yeah. of Iraq. So I think there's a town called Hala. It's on the way down there, and we went through there. And Hala, yeah, yeah. So there was Hala. We started driving through there, and. There was people. There was people as we started coming into the city, where we hear them. Uh, they're blowing whistles, and like you're just thinking. And then they're giving you the 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 look of we we don't like you. And you know we get the traffic. Tra- we get caught behind traffic, and we're we're dismounting. This is before we had armored vehicles. So when we would stop the vehicles. Almost every time if the vehicles were held up, we'd dismount and get away from the vehicles because the vehicles were kind of bullet magnets and, and RPG magnets. So, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd come to a stop and we would patrol, we'd foot patrol along with the vehicle. So the drivers would stay and the gunner would stay and everyone else would dismount and we would foot patrol so we could get a little space. If we were to get attacked, we'd be able to react in a much better way because the vehicles are stu- are basically stuck. You're in a traffic jam. You're in a traffic jam. So I, I, I remember... 
and and the, that is where you would notice different areas you'd get a different vibe from the people and and yes as time went on the vibe shifted earlier it was more positive and, and as 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 we rolled into April, and, and this as, is in a Shia zone, you're talking about down yeah. down Hilla. Hilla is yeah. definitely definitely a Shia zone. So now, when we went down there for QRF, it was like yeah, we were we were not getting nice looks from people. Coming from, I was in the states at the time. I was in the Navy, but um, we weren't engaged, right, in Iraq or anything like that. And you, we, you, we're, we're experiencing something. Uh, we're experiencing Abu Ghraib when it hits something like the civilians experienced it, right? So I can speak from that perspective. Um, th- th- there were people who had been starting to, starting to come in all along who said this is going to be another Vietnam. And they didn't just mean by that that we were going to get bogged down and our mission wasn't going to be accomplished. You know, there was a moral kind of uh, – commentary being made on what we were doing over there. And those people who had been making the argument that America is this imperialist aggressor going over there in this unjust preemptive war to attack the Muslim world out of rage for 9-11 or whatever it is. Um, the Iraq war in March of 2003 had a 74% approval rating in a Gallup poll. Um, now, Part of that is people People like to win. They expected to win. And if we had just cleaned it up, it would have stayed. Even if Abu Ghraib had happened, if we had just cleaned up the war and won it, I think, you know, people like to win. It would have stayed that way. But as it starts to seem like we're losing control of the country and in an election year, that's a big part of this as well. This is in 2004. It's, you know, six, five months, six months before an election, a presidential election. Um, those pictures hit the news. There were a lot of there were a lot of moderate people, not hardcore anti-war people or anything like that, who start to ask, wait a second, like, not only are we seem, do we seem to be losing control of the country over there, what are we doing? Like, it seems like we're losing control of, of ourselves. And when I think it was, it was only two weeks after that, I believe, that, yeah, it was two weeks after that news hit, that Zarqawi put out the Nick Berg tape. And all of a sudden, the American people, this is uh, the first um, American that was beheaded by al-Qaeda in Iraq over there. And all of a sudden, Americans are, they're thinking of the war in very different terms. Rather than thinking of it as a liberation uh, operation, that, of course, there's civilian casualties, there's going to be some messy things that happen, there's even going to be some soldiers that do some things that they oughtn't do. Um, now there seems to be this situation where there is some very, very dark things going on in this incredibly chaotic place, and we are just – that we're starting to get caught up in that, and that we're just one element of darkness in this dark place. Um, because I think Americans, they didn't want to – they didn't want to think or believe that about themselves. Um, and when you see those pictures uh, – you know, they are incredibly shocking for people who are just civilians. I mean, I think they're probably shocking for people who have seen violence as well, because there's a certain there's a certain macabre aspect to a lot of them, and the casual nature with which some of those um, reservists were uh, were posing with some of those inmates. And I happen to be—I I don't know where you fall in this. I can like 
I happen to be uh, of the of the mind that I Abu Ghraib makes me enraged at the the high level uh, political people who set the conditions for that place to happen. I don't I don't um, I don't give myself the right to draw harsh judgments on the soldiers and the, and the MPs who were there, the ones who actually got punished. I wasn't there. They were. I'm not saying it was right or justified or anything like that. I'm saying that you had this, this group of reservists from West Pennsylvania who were put into a situation that they're absolutely not trained for. They were trained as combat support MPs. They were not trained as prison guards. And they are put into an, an absurd situation under incredible stress in a prison that's in a combat zone. Um, you know, Abu Ghraib is it's between Fallujah and Baghdad, right? Right in there somewhere. It's, it's sort of north of the airport. It's sort of north. So, so it's so it's northwest of Baghdad, and it was a bad area. Yes, you're right. It was in a combat zone. They're taking fire at the prison. Um, and now maybe as somebody who is over there and had to be responsible for your behavior and for the behavior of your men, you can feel more comfortable coming down straight on the directly on the people who were involved. I just don't I don't like to do that. I wasn't there. Um, I don't justify it, but I don't know. What do you that. think? What do you think? I think um, I would assume that. Obviously, you talk a lot about leadership. And so the people who set the conditions and created that those conditions are going to be important. But um, I would uh, maybe I would just uh, assume because I know other people who served in Iraq who do hold the people who were directly involved with those things, the soldiers there, the MPs, very responsible because, yeah, I was over there in Iraq too. There were times that I wanted to beat the hell out of somebody or do this, but I didn't. Um, And they did. And that's on them. And look what they cost us. And I get that. And I don't gain say, I don't contradict them and say, well, what about these? That's their right to have that view. And I don't give myself that right. Um, but, I mean, tell me what you think. Well, yeah, you, you called it. When, when I see some frontline troops doing something that they shouldn't be doing, sure, they shouldn't be doing that. Whose fault is it that they're doing that? It's easy to say it's their fault, sure. Um, but as leaders, guess what? If, if you have troops, you're responsible for their actions. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. And if... You have to understand people well enough. That's why I talk about human nature all the time. You're going to tell me you're going to take 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old kids from Western Pennsylvania that are reservists that have very limited limited military training, and what you're going to do is you're going to take them and put them in charge of the detainee, the a bunch of detainees that they think are terrorists. While they're being attacked on a daily basis if by If you don't think, if you, if you can't see what could unfold there, you're, you're not having, you, you don't understand human nature very well. So what does that mean? You, as a leader, you're responsible for telling everyone, hey, this, these are the rules, this is what's in place, this is why it's important. If Al Jazeera sees us, and I, I'll use Al Jazeera, and I think they're, they're and you, you probably well, I know you, you probably will understand their arc of of the way Al Jazeera has ha, ha, what what Al Jazeera has been because Al Jazeera kind of started as a as a sort of almost like a secular kind of anti like extremist uh, broadcast. 
the way Al Jazeera English still primarily is. I, I've got Arabic-speaking friends who send me over stuff. It's very, very different in the Arab-language Arab version. <laughs> so so the the at the time, what Al Jazeera was to us yeah. was they're going to take whatever we do and they're going to spin it to anti-American, you know, in, in an anti-American way. So that was always my kind of like warning to guys. Look, if Al Jazeera sees you doing something, you're, it's going to be a, it's going to be a massive, uh, you know, strategic hit. A little tactical move that you make could be a massive negative strategic hit or negative to to what goes on in the war. So when those guys are doing that, when those male and female um, detainee handlers do that, yeah, there are uh, sure. Do they deserve some punishment? Absolutely. Could that have been prevented and should it have been prevented? It absolutely should have. And I had, you know, we we were running detainee operations as well. So my SEALs would go and capture someone and bring them back and put them in a in a temporary holding facility and we would stand watch on them. That's what would happen. This is also not a smart idea. You know, you 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 I'm gonna go the capture you. Was just shooting you're you. trying to kill us. Yeah. Now we get a hold of you, we bring you back and now now we're responsible for your safety and comfort. This, that's not a good plan. This, it's not a good plan. There needs to be a level of detachment there. So, yeah, that's a, that's a leadership issue. And you've got to understand, this goes back to the conversation that we had about, you know, hey, you've got a sadist in your platoon. And you've got to have that consideration. You've got, a, you've got an asshole in your platoon. You know, you've got an asshole. You're, you're, you've got 25 people that are, that are uh, guards at this prisoner. One of them is going to be an asshole. One of them is going to say, hey, if I get the chance, I'm going to slap one of these guys around. Hey, if I get the chance, I'm going to abuse these people. That's what I'm going to do. You got someone on the other end of that spectrum that they under, they'll, they'll get it and they would put a stop to that. And you got everyone else in the middle. And so when that guy's not, when the good guy's not on watch, this shit happens. Well, yeah, there, there is that. But I, 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 mean, I tend to think of Abu Ghraib as the, as the culmination of a lot of the bad decisions we talked about yesterday, not being able to provide security in the country, not having, which leads to not having enough intelligence, which leads to General Abizade saying, I need more intelligence, go get me actionable intelligence. And so you have all the stuff with, you know, the fourth ID going out there and just doing mass roundups and bringing people in, whole villages that they're bringing in because we, gotta, we don't know the difference. We don't have any human intelligence yet. They're all getting sent to Abu Ghraib because we don't have anywhere else to keep them. Abu Ghraib is the prison that is like the symbol of Saddam's brutal power, right? This had execution chambers, torsion. This is where you got did not want to get sent if you were under Saddam's regime. We start sending all of these people there, huge number by the, by, by the Army's own estimate, 70, 80 percent of them ended up free of charges, didn't need to be yeah. there. Um, they get in there. And a lot of people don't know the whole story uh, of Abu Ghraib. They get stuck on the, the, the grotesque pictures and everything. These reservists from western Pennsylvania, they get sent into this place. It is vastly overcrowded and undermanned to, to you know, they, they, in, uh, I believe in September of 03, they basically got the number of guards that they were going to have until – the next spring. Meanwhile, the population of the prison doubles and then it doubles again. They don't have the manpower to do this. You've got these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids who they walk into this situation and they people are already being stood on boxes naked by military intelligence. They're already being, you know, pinned up against walls and trussed up like in in stress positions. This is already going on when they arrive. 
right? And so I'm, I try to put myself in this situation where, you know, yes, you're supposed to disobey a, an unlawful order, right? If you see something that's going on, there's an open door policy and you're supposed to go on. But if, you're, if I'm a 19-year-old or 20-year-old, I don't know anything about war. I know what I've seen on TV, right? And so I show up the first day, and this stuff is already going on. They didn't invent this. It wasn't these little group of guys that, you know, that went completely off the rails and nobody knew about it. It was this dark thing that happened occasionally, like at nighttime. You know, the famous picture where you have the pile of naked guys, that was the screensaver on the computer in the, in the military police office. Everybody knew what was going on. There were times when these kids would go to medics, go to other people and show them pictures and be like, is this authorized? Can I do this? And they're like, well, the, the famous picture of uh, Lindy England, the female, who was not supposed to be on the block, by the way. She was dating one of the guys on the block. She's from a completely different area. She's not cleared to be there. It gives you an idea of how the discipline had broken down, right? But she's coming just to hang out with her boyfriend every night, and they're goofing around with the prisoners. And there's a famous one where she's walking the naked guy on a leash. So we would end up, uh, we, we ended up in Abu Ghraib with a bunch of people who were mentally ill, right? There wasn't like a, a bunch of psychiatric hospitals. The prisoners. The prisoners. Yep. Yeah, right. The prisoners. There weren't a bunch of functional psychiatric mental health facilities all over Iraq at the time. And so we would be out there and a lot of time these people who were mentally ill would give our soldiers problems and, you know, uh, we would be like, okay, this guy's a problem. Take him in. And we would take him in and then they would get into the general population. Yeah, just, to, just to even clarify that more, when you say give them problems, this is just someone that's not doing what you're telling them to do because they don't understand. They're, they're scared. And you're a, you're a 22-year-old soldier and you look at the guy and go, you know, I, I can't judge what's happening, but this guy's not doing what I tell him to do. Right. But zip him up. And we bring the guy in. He's unmanageable in the general population, so we send him over to the hard site where we actually have individual cells, and we put him in there. And um, they're trying to get this guy. He's spitting on people, this guy in question, the one in that picture. He's spitting on people. He's throwing feces at people. He takes off his own clothes. They didn't strip him, okay? Um, and he goes and gets a tie strap for a, from a Humvee, and he puts it around his shoulders to, like, walk this guy over. And the guy goes down on his hands and knees, and the strap comes up around his neck, so it looks like a leash. And uh, they're walking him to the place that they're trying to bring him. And he actually, the guy, uh, uh, Grainer, who's like kind of, he's supposed to be the real sadist in the group, and he has some sadistic tendencies. There's no question about that. He took that picture, and he took it to the medics, and he explained the situation of what happened and said, is this, like, this is what happened? Is this okay? And they, gave, they said, well, yeah, under the circumstances, you know, I mean, that, that seems fine. And so, you know, this, this was the environment that these 19, 20, 21-year-old reservists who are not trained to be prison guards are finding themselves in here. And I think one of the other things that blows me away, um, it just blows me away that this is how it is, is uh, that, you know, the military intelligence folks, the interrogators, they wanted to be able to kind of play some good cop, bad cop and, you know, be the uh, kind of... Uh, be able to build a relationship with some of these people they're trying to interrogate in various ways, depending on who they are. And it was the military police who were in charge of kind of setting the conditions in the place and making sure that the prisoners were in a sufficient level of discomfort so that when they went in to be interrogated, um, the military police, uh, the, the military intelligence guys, the interrogators could kind of play that good cop side. And so you have now, now that is something you're supposed to walk this fine line between, you know, 
setting conditions to make people properly uncomfortable and abuse, like that fine line. And that is something that should require extraordinary training and discipline, right? That is a hard, hard thing to do, especially when you're talking about unsophisticated 20-year-old reservists who are dealing with jihadis. Uh, you're dealing with guys who are, you know, maybe a, he was a colonel in the in Saddam's army. And you got to think of like what kind of, you know, just adaptable, savvy cockroach you got to be to survive that long, you know, under Saddam and make your way through the system. And now I am a guy who doesn't speak Arabic and I've got to figure out how to make this guy do what I want him to do. And um, I have no ways to control this guy who's looking at me. He's just not taking me remotely seriously, and I can sense that. And uh, I have no way to control this guy other than force in order to make him respect my authority and comply with what I – they're just they – were, they, they were absolutely not prepared to be in that situation. And I blame the people who put him there and who created the conditions for that to happen. I don't know – I don't know – I don't know what group of 20-year-old reservists you could have put into a situation like that that would have handled it well. Would uh, they have done what they did? I'll tell you know. what group. A group that had a good leader. You have, you have a good leader that explains what's going on. These things, an American soldier, reservist, active duty, doesn't matter. You you put good leadership over those individuals and they will do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. That, that's what happens. And I've seen this over and over and over again in my time in in the US military, working with soldiers, working with Marines, meeting 18-year-old kids, 20-year-old kids. The, if, if you lead them correctly, they will absolutely do what they are supposed to do. If you don't, if you don't, well, then they're gonna they're gonna go where nature takes them. And and you know, another thing we have to remember is, and you know, this was my sort of initial reaction, was like, oh. Whatever you know, uh, when, when I joined the SEAL teams, you know it's a it was a it's a very uh, very violent culture and a very hard culture to be a part of, and you know we got hazed we got we got hazed significantly and and that's just the way it was. So every single one of those pictures, I was like, oh yeah, you know we we, we I, I've been that I've, I've been, been the I've guy been on the guy. ground, you know oh, I've been that guy. I've been beat up. I've been been taped up. I've been hung up. I've been all yeah. those things. Um, you know that that's that's normal every day. And then you take it one step further. You look at the whole Navy. Uh, oh, when I went through the shellback ceremony, uh, not quite as bad as a SEAL team hazing, but it was a big authorized hazing. And then I was like, oh, what about Sears School? Well, what what happened to me at Sears School? Oh, guess what they're doing to you in Sears School? They're slapping you around. You know, you're you're naked. You're you're being abused. That's the way it is. You're freezing. Um, they're putting you in stress positions. It's all the same stuff. So, from my my you know my my initial reaction was like, yeah, well, whatever. These are these are terrorists. And by the way, you you contrast that against the fact that Zarqawi's sawing people's heads off. Right, and I'm like, wait a second, the enemy is sawing people's heads off, and I'm supposed to be mad at this reservist because she walked a guy around with a leash. Look, that's that's and that and you know what? That is actually the reality. That that's the reality. That's the reality of what happened. Well, when you compare what was going on in there to what was going on in there under in that same facility under Saddam. 
yeah. a year and a half before. And, and here's the deal. The, even though that's the reality of what happened, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Yeah. Everything I just said had no, had no, it did nothing to paint, to clean up the, the picture that got put out by the insurgent and the, the Al Jazeera media and really, and our, our own media yeah. that posted these pictures over and over again with no explanations. And, and you, you know, you show that to an Iraqi, this is what the Americans are doing to us. This in, is in Abu Ghraib. In Abu Ghraib, this is Saddam's absolutely prison. what this this added. This is why I said on the last episode, this is what added so much fuel to the fire that it became. Yeah, this is this is this is uh, a turning point, and that is why, from a leadership perspective, everybody on your team has to understand that their tactical decisions can have strategic impacts, and that is an example I use all the time at Echelon Front of a tactical decision that had strategic impact on an entire war. That that's exact like, you know, you want to look at Bremer and you want to talk about, you know, disbanding the Iraqi police and the Iraqi military. Yeah, that's a strategic blunder and it had strategic implications. But this is a tactical blunder committed by frontline troops, E3s and E4s that had a massive strategic negative impact on the war. There's a lesson to be learned from that all day long. Also, and I'll go back and forth with people on this as well. You know, how could I have been responsible if I was the if I was the if I was the company commander, if I was the battalion commander, if I was in charge of that person, how can I be responsible for what those frontline troops do? And that right there is just where everything falls apart. Because the minute you have people saying, hey, it's not my responsibility what the frontline troops do, that's the complete wrong answer. It's the complete wrong answer. You have to do the proper training. You have to give them the proper um, understanding of what the mission is. You have to under- give them an understanding of what the impact of their mission is, what the parameters of it. They have to understand. You as a leader are absolutely responsible for that. And when we fail to lead, this is the kind of thing that happens. I agree, and I and I agree that it was ugly when people started scrambling for cover rather than taking responsibility um, after it happened. Um, although there's evidence that they were getting political pressure put on them to do that. Remember, this is an election year, and it, I mean, to me, like the idea that nobody in the upper echelon of the Defense Department resigned their position over Abu Ghraib just blows me away. But the Bush administration was in a point where we're in the middle of a close election. This we have to just put this on, you know, these E2s and E3s and E4s on the ground and like wash our hands of this. When there was a lieutenant colonel in the prison who knew what was going on, there were JAG officers who came through that prison. And, uh, you know, there was an incident where Grainer, that, you know, the main kind of the main ringleader guy, um, he had this game where he would have hooded prisoners and he would like to just jokingly kind of walk them around and get them disoriented and then walk them into a wall. And one of them got a bloody nose and so, uh, you know, a medic saw it and cleaned him up and everything. And they decided they needed to counsel Grainer over it, give him a counseling shit, right? And now normally for non-military people out there, a counseling shit is like sort of a reprimand, right? We have this counseling shit. It's been, you know, it's been printed in newspapers and stuff. It's not at all. It just kind of says like, hey, you're doing a great job. Um, if you need any kind of clarification on the rules or anything, or if you're under too much stress, make sure you talk to us, da, 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 but keep up the great work. And, you know, this was after a guy had just walked a prisoner into a wall and uh, made his nose bleed, which, again, like 
in the context of Al-Qaeda, in the context of Saddam is nothing. In the context of being a new guy in a SEAL platoon. Right. So like, if I, if I got away with just a bloody nose and walk into a wall, I'd be pretty stoked. So the fact that <laughs> the fact that that was your initial reaction, this is interesting. Um, the fact that that was your kind of initial reaction. And I think it was a lot of people's initial reaction is like, well, okay, yeah, but we're still not them. It tells me, though, that at this point in the war, uh, we still did not realize that we were fighting. A, we, we were running a counterinsurgency. I, I think you're, you're right that we didn't realize and I don't think we were. I think that this is what turn this is what this is what solidified the insurgency. Okay. This this is what turned it from hey, some Iraqis that you know, you take you take 20 Iraqis that the month prior still had that American flag in their back pocket for when the when the tide changed, all of a sudden they were like, "Oh, no." And and you know, 10 of those 20 threw that American flag away at that point. I found it interesting. Uh, somebody, I've heard somebody say one time, I don't remember if it was in the context of Abu Ghraib or not, they were talking about, you know, you don't, need, uh, you don't need sadists for something like this to happen. You have a bunch of inexperienced people under extraordinary stress who are not trained to handle the situation that they're in. Um, and from even from the political level, from the administration, because it's in the press. People are watching the news that there's a debate going on. Should torture be allowed? Where Should, should we move the definition of, of torture over a little bit or not? So that's in the air, that there's some permissiveness going on. They walk into a situation where everything that we saw in those pictures was already happening, and they're told, this is what military intelligence wants. Well, I'm an E2. I just showed up to the war. Am I going to be like, well, I don't know any better. I'll say, okay, I... I know what I've seen in movies and on TV, but I guess this is real war and this is how real war actually is. So I'm not going to say anything. Um, and they, they, they get into that situation. Um, but it's not it's you, you don't have to have people ordered to do it. You don't have to have, um, you know, a, 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 all you need is a certain amount of permissiveness. And the way the person put it was, if you think there was uh, if, imagine if there was a bar in San Diego or Los Angeles where. It was just you could go in there and there was a person and you could just go punch them and insult them and whatever. So you get up, get done with work and you could just go home and have a beer. Or you and your buddies, you had a stressful day and you go in there and you could slap this guy around. And not everybody would do it, but that place wouldn't be empty. It True. wouldn't be empty. And just, just by making it allowed and not having – I mean there's a reason that the army is – that the military is – an institution of discipline, right, is you are gearing people up to go face an extraordinarily difficult task, which involves killing and being killed. 19-year-old kids who, who were working at a, at, a, at a mechanics garage four months ago, you know, and you have to get them in the mindset that they can deal with killing somebody and with people trying to kill them and with their friends being killed. And where this is not a distant reality where, you know, smart bombs are taking out Iraqi high-value targets while we're kind of over here in Kuwait, Abu Ghraib is getting hit with mortars all the time. And so it's right there going on. And the people that they're processing into this prison, they're being told, these are the people who are firing those at you. These are the people who, if they overrun this prison or if they get loose and there's like a prison break or something, will chop your head off without a second thought. And that was true of some of them, Mm -hmm. right? And these 19-year-olds have to figure out how to be the authority figure in a situation like that. And it is just, you know, all of the decisions from Brem, you know, th- this is like the reason I said it, 
uh, you know, the decision to go in with too few troops against the advice of the military so that we couldn't control the country and we didn't have the research. All of those decisions are why those kids ended up in that place under those conditions, you know? Yeah, and it's also... Um Again, it's a lack of understanding of human nature. Yeah. Right. What's that? What's the famous experiment at Stanford where they, you know, the, the prison experiment? Yeah. yeah. The, the, pri- the Stanford prison experiment. Yeah. Right. Does, does everyone not know that yeah. if you put people into a position of authority, they're going to start to abuse their power. And now you set the conditions like you just said. These are these are terrorists in my mind. You know, these are terrorists and I'm a good guy. They're bad guys. And I'm being told actually to make sure they're uncomfortable. Cool. I got this. Where do you think that's going to end up? Where do you think that's going to end up? <laughs> Especially if you're not trained. I mean, just think about like if you are in charge, say the Stanford prison experiment, you don't need sadism, right, to, to, to explain it. Like just I'm in an authority position. There's a person over there on the other side who's telling me to fuck off. And now I got to figure out how to make him compliant. Now, there's ways to do it. If you got to be pretty sophisticated to do that, to do it without resorting to force or coercion. You can do it, but you got to be pretty sophisticated you know, you got to be kind of an alpha personality. You have to have ways to do it. They were not they were not given any of those tools. They were just told, be the man, control these people. These are terrorists. And when these people got noncompliant, they don't have any tools to handle these guys except for force and humiliation. And, and, and those are the tools that they have, you know. And it was just uh, it was a, it was an awful, awful situation um, when it happened. And. Um, and it became pretty clear very shortly after that, that we were looking at something like an insurgency. Uh, As I said, very quickly, in my estimation, that event and the the way that it got portrayed absolutely solidified the insurgency without without a doubt in my mind. And and if you kind of look at the time, look, there was there was the insurgency was starting to gel a little bit, right? A little bit. You know, you had pockets here, you had pockets there. You know, you were, you were just talking about what was happening in Najaf, what was happening in Sadr City, what was happening in Fallujah. Like, you had stuff going on. But there were still Iraqis that were like, you know, I hope the Americans can pull this off. And when that happened, yeah, all that, all those little pieces that were floating around all of a sudden started to gel. Were you, you know, you had been taking out a lot of criminals, gangsters, People like that during your first tour. Um, had you seen enough by that point that when the Nick Berg tape came out in uh, May of 2004, that that did not surprise you? Did you already have an idea of that, that this, these are the people we were kind of dealing with? I think that the Fallujah Bridge, yeah. that, was the, that, that, that to me was the first indicator of okay, I see where this is going, and then Nick Berg was an exclamation point on that. When you, uh, I mean, you were processing back probably by that point to start your tours, uh, the Admiral's aid. I mean, were you just like, screw that, send me back, <laughs> like turn me loose on these people? Yeah, I mean, it was really hard. The it was a, it was a real. It, it was a when I when I was when I was pleading with my boss to plead with his boss to plead with his boss to let us go to Fallujah and 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 help in that situation and we got stood down that was a hard pill for me to swallow I was very I was very disappointed about that you know I was very disappointed about that 
and it, it kind of left a mark and yeah that was that was a hard that was a hard one you know um and actually <laughs> those guys okay so one of them Scott Halveston was a, was a seal and those guys had come to my compound we we stayed in a compound in in Baghdad those contractors yes okay those contractors came to my compound and they had kind of just shown up um at least that's the impression that i got was that they had just shown up and so we had a conversation with them and i remember like i was like talking with some of them and remember i said my um my platoon chief was a like an off-road guy and and so he was all dialed on vehicles and and so we're sitting there talking to him and i remember asking him or either that or my, it was probably my chief asked him because he was had the mindset of vehicles. And he was like, do you guys have run flats? Because they had these armored, these armored um, like Ford Explorers, which was kind of what everyone was driving. The armored Ford Explorers were crap. Um, they, they, they didn't, all they did was add armor, like the, the minimum kind of armor, but there was no adjustments to the suspension. So they were just kind of crap. And I remember my, my platoon chief asking, I was pretty sure it was him, saying, do you guys have run flats? Meaning if you get a flat tire, can you keep going? And their answer was no. And so you know you, you kind of had a bad feeling. And this is now that when you're asking me this question, which you, you seem to want to know if I sensed the escalation, this is one of the things where as I think back on it, the, I this is where we knew things were escalating because we were looking at these guys saying, "Hey, do you guys have run flats? Because if you're going into Fallujah, we knew where they where they were going. Yeah, and they got ambushed, and they got ambushed. And I'll have to I'll have to actually go back and ask my platoon chief if it was that crew. But I'm almost positive. And again, uh, forgive my memory, man. This is yeah, yeah. This is lots happened between now and then. A lots happened between between now and then, and I'm glad we're talking about it, but. Yeah. There was contractors that were not prepared. Yeah. And three months prior, you could run around in Baghdad however you wanted to, and you'd be fine. Two months prior, you'd be running around in Baghdad. You might want to check yourself a little bit. You know, starting to get into March, you'd be like, mm, okay, we, we need to think about this. Now, in April, we're looking at these guys going, do you have run flats in case you get a flat tire? Because if you get a flat tire and you, you, you lose your mobility, you're going to lose your survivability. So that is what, that, that is the kind of thing that we were thinking about. And then those, seeing those guys, you know, strung up from the bridges, from the bridge, and then Nick Berg, it was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is, this is going to get worse. That's the only uh that's the only one of those videos I've watched. I made myself watch the Nick Berg one when it first came out and I after that I was like I I don't need to watch another one. I've seen it. Um I thought about watching the Foley one when it came out, but um you know Nick Berg by all accounts is a great kid. He's a little eccentric and um you know who he reminds me of in certain ways if uh, you've ever read the book or seen the movie Into the Wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About Chris McCandless. Yeah. He kind of reminds me of that guy where he's a little bit naive, maybe. He's idealistic. Just like those contractors, though, who 
had no idea apparently what country they were in, and a lot of people didn't yet. Yeah, that was another thing. Like you'd see contractors, and at this point, look, I'm not. We, we were by no means like battle hardened, you know, guys because our our first deployment, we got in a few firefights. Um, Playing the game on God mode. Yeah, we we we, but we had done a lot of operations. Yeah. And we were good. We were good at what we were doing. Like when you saw our convoy, you know, when you saw our convoy maneuver through the streets, we were really good. You know, if we had a flat tire, we looked like a NASCAR pit crew. You know, again, my, my platoon chief, you know, running guys through drills, my, my leading petty officer running guys through drills, the guys in the platoons just locked on. And so we, you know, we, like I said, we weren't battle hardened. But we'd done a lot of operations. And we'd see, it's like the classic, you know, and I talked about this with some of the SOG guys I've had on my podcast, or and even just any of the Vietnam guys, that classic scene that you see in the movies of the new guy getting off the plane in Saigon and, you know, with his brand new clean camis on and, you know, a fresh haircut and freshly shaven. Credence playing in the background. And Credence playing in the background. And then, you know, who does he come across? He comes across the long-haired, yeah, yeah, yeah. hardened, thousand-yard stare, gear totally trashed. Um, not even trashed, but broken in. I remember looking at these contractors, and, you know, they got brand-new web gear. They got brand, you know, they got brand-new setup. You can tell that they haven't worn it very much. You know, they might have done some shooting drills or whatever. So you're you're... You're a little bit nervous when you see guys like that. And because well, this is a different time, too. But as you get into 08, 09, a lot of those contracts, these are former special ops guys. These are a bunch of guys with experience a lot totally. of the time. These contractors, point, a lot the of these contractors were guys that had been in, you know, been in the military, been in the SEAL teams, been in the, you know, been the Green Bray or whatever. In 04, how much experience could they have had? Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, they were, they were a Green Beret in the 90s they were a seal in you know 1987 um you know i i I mean i met i had lunch with guys i remember having lunch with guys you know like team guys you know and they're they're your they're your bros and they're fired up to be over there because you know as much as i talked about uh wanting to be in combat and had the luck of going getting to be in combat and i talked about guys that had been in for 30 years that never were well those guys got out and all of a sudden an opportunity came for them to lock and load their weapons and go do God's work. And they took that opportunity. But, you know, it's, it, I met plenty of guys, especially because this, this is the actual time. You know, this is the time when Blackwater and the rest of the, the, rest of the contracting gigs, you know, this is like 1,200, 1,500 bucks a day. That's, yeah. how, what, that's what the demand signal was. And the demand signal was we want guys that were special operations, you know. Because they had at least have more training. And it was, you know, you fast forward three, four years, and it was like, hey, we'll take pretty much anybody. Um, especially because pretty much anybody, if you were in the military, you know, you had run convoys and you knew how to handle yourself. It, it feels like with the contractors, the way you're uh, <coughs> describing it, that they, it doesn't sound like they had the same kind of overarching leadership structure that was like looking after them, that they had like a looser leadership structure that, I mean, the, 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 the idea that they were going into Fallujah with, you know, when they couldn't run flat and just all that, like who's making that decision to allow them to do something like that? Yeah. It was that experience for me that, you know, 1500 bucks a day, but you couldn't have given me enough money to 
take those jobs because I was just looking at him going, man, like I'm, I, you know, I'm literally standing there looking at a guy that has, you know, whatever, whatever dumb gear setup he had where you're looking at, you know, he's got his, he's going to get in a vehicle and he's got his pistol, like, you know, whatever, in a position where he's never going to be able to get that thing out or whatever dumb thing they had. And you're looking at him thinking like, that sucks. And then you're looking at, you know, over at one one of my guys who has everything completely dialed in can make things happen, you know, immediately. You know, I, 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 my assistant platoon commander at the time was just one of those kind of, kind of gear, gear heads, you know, and everything he was testing all the time. And I'm looking at him going, you know, this guy, you know, my guy is so eminently prepared. And I'm looking at this contractor going, sheesh. Mm-hmm. And what kind of comms do you guys have? You know, there's a question that I'm gonna ask, right? Uh, that's, you know, my, my platoon chief is gonna go, do you have run flats? I'm gonna say, hey, what kind of comms do you have? Because I, I was a radio man, so, you know, SEAL platoons, you know, that was, that was how I was raised. And, and I'm, I'm the guy that's asking, what kind of comms do you have? And they, you know, you get the response of, oh, we have inner squad radios for, you know, the two cars so we can talk to each other. Oh, what are you gonna do if you get in trouble? Well, we have, what was it? Uh, whatever sat phone, you know, satellite, civilian satellite communication thing. Who are you going to call? You you see what I'm I'm going with this? This is just all bad. It's all bad. And that's why, you know, when when we saw that unfold, it was, you know, it was horrible to see. It It was horrible to see. And it caught them off guard. Because contractors had been running around the country doing all kinds of work, good work, good work, yeah, good work, providing security, you know, running convoys for people. They were they were doing good work, and and necessary work, and saving, you know, uh, the government money. Because even though those guys were getting paid fifteen hundred bucks a day, at the end of the day, that's way cheaper than hiring or than bringing you know bringing in an enlisted man to go through the training and be on the VA for the rest of his life. Like there's a there's a cost benefit to it. And there's a cost benefit to them because they have the opportunity to make money. So they were doing good work. But when things started to escalate and you're, and you know, if you're Blackwater and you're bringing in contractors, you know, you're bringing in contractors in, in whatever, four or five months earlier, hey, give them a little training, cool, go run a convoy. They put their military experience with their little training they just got. They got a couple guys that have a little experience, you're good to go. They, they make it happen. You, you, you fast forward to, sending men to Fallujah and, and you see the results. Yeah. People didn't have, they didn't have an idea of what kind of war we were in yet. And I mean, Nick Berg is a perfect example of that. I mean, he was a, you know, if he would have gone to Kosovo to do what he did. So he was 26 years old um, and he had a business. He was kind of an adventurous kid. He'd do cross country bike rides, that kind of thing. And he had a business um, where he would fix high-rise like communications and transmission equipment. He would dangle 600 feet up in the air and do repairs, electrician repairs. And uh, he was good at it, and he wanted to start his own business. He had actually done some work in Kenya before where he would go down and he would kind of do humanitarian work and also like pursue some business opportunities in his mid-20s, which is kind of a fascinating kid. Most people aren't doing that in their mid-20s. If he would have gone to Kosovo and done something like that, and you know the bad guys would have come across him there. They might have held him for a while. They might have, uh, he might have, you know, caught a stray bullet or something like that. Uh, but they weren't just looking for Americans. And if they find you, they're going to kill you and publicize it. It was just a different kind of 
it was a different kind of war and a different kind of enemy. And I think people didn't realize that that was the kind of war we were in yet. And um, there's no mistaking it after that Nick Berg tape came out. Um, watching Zarqawi read that statement and then murder him himself in such a grisly way, and it took so long um, that, especially with it coming right after Abu Ghraib, I think people just started to get a very dark view of the war. And things only started to deteriorate in the country in many ways from then because this, I'm pretty pretty sure that this is around the time when we didn't really exactly know what we were dealing with. We didn't exactly know who this enemy was or where they were, and so we just kind of pulled back. It was an election year. We didn't want a lot of casualties, and we just started to pull back into our bases and kind of did this, you know, Petraeus called it drive-by counterinsurgency, where we're just racing our convoys through an area and going back to our bases. And meanwhile, wide swaths of the country are just being taken over by al-Qaeda. And, um, you know, there was a... uh, well, there was a strategic decision that was made, arguably, for what were a lot of political reasons having to do with domestic politics. And also, I think, because we just didn't, we didn't expect to be in this war. This is not the war that we planned for. Um, we had people, right, just like this happens in a lot of wars, we had people who knew what kind of war this was, and they were ready to fight this war. You know, Petraeus had been up by himself in Mosul with the 101st all this time. Mosul, for anybody who doesn't know the map of Iraq, is way, way, way up in the north, far away. So he had some level of autonomy from what was going on in Baghdad and everything. And this is a guy with a PhD who literally wrote the book, right, mm-hmm. on counterinsurgency. And, and, he, and he's the man. I mean, he knows what he's talking about. He studied this stuff. And he was handling Mosul in a very different way. He understood the hearts and minds aspect. He understood the fact that we have to win over this population if we're going to actually you know, provide any stability and build something here. And, you know, the particular enemy that we had, Al-Qaeda, so dark. You forget about flying planes into buildings, okay? I mean, that's a, that was an evil act and everything, but something like that, I can honestly just put it as a, you know what, this is a terrorist action, but they're attacking a symbol of American power for their sort of broad strategic reasons and, and, and fine. The kind of interpersonal savagery that Al-Qaeda in Iraq was engaging in to the point where eventually, you know, Osama bin Laden said, eh, we need to pull back from these guys, right? Um, that they gave us this opportunity. It, was, it would have been just on a silver platter to say to the Iraqi people, look, this is your other option. We're the good guys here. We're going to make mistakes. Some of our soldiers are going to do some bad things. But, you know, Saddam was here, and now these are your other options. We're, the, we're, we're your best option here. And, you know, because of Abu Ghraib and because we had this lack of understanding and we were trying to make up for those early mistakes for a couple of years, right, um, we, we just we, – we, it took three years until 2006, you know, before we really started to realize, put some people in charge who knew what was going on and were ready to take action and take risks, you know. And that's – we're going to get into that in the next episode here. But I want to talk about, like, just what a huge – gamble Ramani was and how you know people think the American military is like well 
it's really just a matter of focus. Like as soon as we decide we want to go do something, you know, we might be have we we might be making bad decisions for political reasons. We might have a muddled mission or whatever. But if we actually decide to go do something, then it's over, and we'll just go do it. Right? Um, at the at the time, it was there were people who thought the Ramadi mission was suicidal. That there was no way you guys were going to pull that off, and there was so much riding on it because if you hadn't pulled it off, and it hadn't gone the way that it went. I mean, I, the surge wouldn't have happened. No. You know, I, and um, as you're back home and you're watching the news, I mean, you must have had, and hearing stories from guys who were coming back and guys who were over there, you must have had sort of a, this, this creeping uh, understanding coming up that, like, when you go back, A, you're going back, and B, when you go back, like, it's going to be on. Let's talk about that on the next episode because there's a whole story behind that. Um, Well, if you're listening to this podcast on the Jocko podcast feed, it's now on its own feed as well. And eventually we'll separate those. So if you want to hear these types of stories, subscribe to this podcast if you want to listen to it. You can also check out our other podcasts. I have a podcast called Jocko Podcast. The Warrior Kid podcast as well. And then I have a more lighthearted podcast called Grounded. And Daryl has a not so lighthearted podcast called Martyr Made. And if you want to support any and all of these podcasts, you can do so by getting some gear from Jocko Store or from OriginMain.com. Thanks for listening as things unravel. This is Jocko and Daryl. Out.